Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Morning Shift. I'm Jen White. Do you need to make some extra cash? Well, driving for a rideshare company may be an option, but if you owe fines to the city, you can be blocked from that option. And that same policy applies to cab drivers. Elliot Ramos is WBEZ's data editor. Elliot's been digging into the city's policies, and he found that drivers most affected by the policy live in low-income neighborhoods on the south and west sides. And as far as the number of people affected... Uh, About 15,500 were uh, removed this year. That was back in April. Uh, More have come into compliance since then, but there's still several thousand still in this program. This policy that makes it possible to suspend rideshare drivers, it was spearheaded by Alderman Anthony Bill Uh, Yes, in the Ninth Ward. And you spoke to him about the policy. Let's listen to what he said. When the rideshare industry first came into the city of Chicago, they operated for over two years with no regulation whatsoever. Uh, They were not licensed. Nobody was watching them. The city didn't have any regulation on them whatsoever. For over two years, they were able to perform services without any regulations. At the same time, they were systematically taking um, rides away from the cab industry who are overregulated. And so when you have an industry came in that was not regulated at all, and then another industry that was overregulated, it was a recipe for disaster for the taxicab industry. So what I did was to try to make sure that, uh, you know, both sides were on the same level playing field, and that was the just of the ordinance, to make sure that each industry is abiding by the same rules and regulations, and one is not underregulated while the other is overregulated, and that creates an unlevel playing field. So the aldermen, they're talking about leveling the playing field for cab drivers and rideshare drivers. Were you able to get a sense uh, for how deeply the cab industry was impacted by this policy? So there's not nearly as many uh, licensed cab drivers. Uh, I believe there's about 10,000 versus, I mean, that's still a lot, uh, but compared to 100,000 drivers. And the taxi industry is a very old industry, so they have a lot of regulations on them. And if we can recall the time before Uber and Lyft, there were all sorts of fuel surcharges, additional passenger fees, all that stuff were kind of tacked on throughout the years. And when Uber and Lyft came in, it was like, okay, this is this is cheap. But they got around a lot of different types of regulations. So Beal had tried for years to get them to ha- uh, require chauffeur's licenses and at one point wanted them to be fingerprinted for background checks. The rideshare companies pushed back on that. They even threatened to leave the city. This was a couple years ago. But this, uh, this part of the program was kind of the consolation prize out of all of that uh, back and forth. Now, how did the rideshare companies respond to this policy when it was first implemented? They fought it because they're going to fight any regulation on it. Um, But they also, I I spoke to both Lyft and Uber, and Lyft said that they warned that this would happen. Um, They said that it would dramatically affect low-income drivers, but that's also kind of a misnomer because a lot of people that do drive for these services are low-income. Talk a little bit about how common this kind of policy is uh, in, in other cities. It's not. A lot of Chicago's debt collection policies, particularly around tickets, um, is very unique to Chicago. A lot of our late penalties is very unique. Uh, a lot of our late fines for city stickers, as we know, is very unique to Chicago. So this particular program, even though the taxi drivers had to deal with it, it's, it's very unique to Chicago. Um, no other major city has one. 
So I want you to just sort of talk us through the mechanics and explain how it works, how you get from having this fine to having your ability to drive for a rideshare company, how that gets suspended. Okay. So it's not like you drive for Uber and Lyft and you get a, a red light camera ticket and then you're immediately bounced out because it's not in payment. The city will run annual checks. So you got a long time before this even comes up. And when this check comes up, um, you have 90 days to come into compliance. So the vast majority of, of people do come into compliance after a certain amount of time. So once a 90-day period comes up and you're not in compliance, that's when um, they start removing people. That doesn't mean that that's a one-time only thing. They can come into compliance at any time, um, also by entering a payment plan. Uh, it's not just like the full amount needs to be done. Even if you're on a payment plan, you can get ba- back in the system. Well, give us a better understanding of how much money we're talking about here. How much is owed to the city by rideshare drivers? What's the, what's the breakdown? As of last year, the debt check that was done in December 2018, I believe, is $19.4 million. But it, there's a caveat to that because because a lot of these are outstanding tickets that are in final determination. Um, like it could be any ticket that's in final determination, meaning the past you're past the time for um, contesting a ticket. That also means that those fines have been doubled. So that uh, $19.4 million, half of that's from late fees alone. We're talking to WBEZ data editor Elliot Ramos about his new investigation into the city's fine collection policy for rideshare drivers. The policy allows the city to suspend residents' ability to drive for companies like Uber and Lyft if they owe fines to the city. So we're not talking about a small amount of money. And with the city facing this $838 million budget gap, I can hear people asking, well, of course, they should try to collect that money to chip away at the gap. But there are people who push back on that idea. Talk about that. Well, it's one of those things where we're in a gig economy. Whether or not you, you like that or not, we kind of are in one. Um, a lot of people are working multiple jobs. You're, you're doing Postmates. You're doing whatever you can to make a living. And a lot of people will contend that whether or not you agree with those types of economies or agree with those types of businesses that sometimes take advantage of people, if you're hard up, you're not, you don't care about the politics of it. You're just trying to make ends meet. And people would say that barring people from trying to make ends meet was in itself, uh, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Well, we should mention here that there are a lot of discussions about, as you said, whether these rideshare companies are really helping people earn a living or make extra money. Talk about how that converges with the city's debt collection policy. You spoke with the Jobs Council? Oh, yeah. Uh, Chicago Jobs Council, they're a nonprofit. Um, They advocate for access to employment, and they've been a big advocate with both Springfield and city legislation for uh, ending license suspensions for uh, parking violations. And they were sort of in the same same boat. Um, I talked with Eric Halverson, who's a communications associate there. No matter how many issues you have with rideshare services overall, the people who are left with no better option for work than to, to, to work as rideshare drivers should not be the casualties of a bigger fight over how you want those platforms to exist in our local economy. So I, I want to talk about the people who are being impacted um, by this policy. You did an analysis of the data. What did you find? I say this a lot on this show is every time I make a data map of Chicago, they all look the same. They are coming from low-income neighborhoods, but predominantly black neighborhoods, not just in Chicago, but also uh, black majority suburbs like Dalton. And when you look at those numbers, how does that line up with some of the earlier reporting you've done on debt collection? It looks the same. 
I mean, what is I mean, over the past few years when you've been doing this reporting? I mean, what does it tell you about the livability of the city and kind of where we are right now? Well, it's kind of one of those things where there's this perception by a lot of people that have lived here for a long time that they're being priced out. And when the jobs aren't there and you're forced to do gig economy jobs, that's kind of the job of last resort for some. And when that's the only option available to you and it's taken away, they're like, what now? And they had to figure out whether or not they can stay in the city. Well, we should also remind people that this isn't just taxi cab drivers and rideshare drivers who are impacted by this policy. How is this policy affecting city employees? So city employees have a, a different policy. They, the city runs something called the Employee Indebtedness Program. We haven't done a lot of reporting on it, but it does impact even like firefighters, Chicago police officers, paramedics, uh, CTA drivers, and uh Public school teachers are actually the most affected by this program. Uh, We've run some data analysis on that by department. Um, I met one firefighter who had tens of thousands of dollars in tickets because his son's car was parked on a vacant lot and it was getting the tickets were being sent to the wrong address. And how did that impact him? Because he has to be an EMT driver. Uh, If they suspend his license, he can't hold the job. So he had to declare bankruptcy to keep his job. How has the city responded to your reporting so far? They want me to, to emphasize the fact that there are reforms on the way, um, and this is also in part by some of the reporting that we did with ProPublica. Um, so I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, mm-hmm. but the reforms that are uh, up for council actually next week uh, will make adjustments to the payment plan. Those will make the entry to the payment plan as low as $35 for low-income individuals. Once you're on the payment plan, you're already you're reactivated, and that should happen like almost immediately. And what will you be watching for as Mayor Lightfoot and the City Council decides how to move forward? I think right now it's a wait and see. A lot of people don't know what's going to happen with the payment plans. Those are all very new reforms, and whether or not it has a trickle-down effect into a lot of different things, including uh, car seizures, employment opportunities, uh, nobody knows quite yet, but they're hopeful that that's going to be the case. That's WBEZ Data Editor Elliot Ramos, and you can find his full story online at WBEZ.org. Elliot? Thanks. Thanks. Now, one place rideshare drivers will be picking up a lot of passengers in the future is Lincoln Yards, the mega development that's being built between Bucktown and Lincoln Park. Sterling Bay, the developers behind Lincoln Yards, are getting a lot of public money for the project. About $1.3 billion will come to them through the city's TIF, or Tax Increment Finance System. But yesterday, lawyers for a pair of activists argued that Sterling Bay shouldn't be getting that money. Here's a representative from one of the plaintiffs making her argument. Two weeks ago, the Chicago Tribune came out with a whopper of a story that explains city council's rush to vote on this megatiff despite overwhelming community opposition. The truth is that Lincoln Yards did not qualify for TIF funding at the time that it was passed. This should be a huge scandal, but in Chicago, it's just business as usual. That's Jenny Biggs, a CPS parent and the communications and outreach director for Raise Your Hand for Illinois Public Education. That's one of the groups suing the city. That reporting, she cited, was from Tribune reporter Hal Dardick. He, along with WBEZ Neighborhoods reporter Linda Lutton, have been covering Lincoln Yards. Hal kicks things off by describing how and why former Mayor Emanuel pushed the project. He saw it as a way to bring jobs to the city, and uh, during the, it had been in the works for a long time. Sterling Bay had been buying a property there. 
they and it was a long uh, drawn out process. The first they had to eliminate the solely industrial uh, planning designation there so that they could build this kind of development there. Then they had to come back and draw up the TIF documents, uh, tax increment finance documents, and and it got to the point where it was very close to the end of his uh, last uh, term in office. All of a sudden, everything started accelerating, and he was speaking, you know, very highly of this development. His uh, planning commissioner, David Reifman, was. Uh, pushing uh, very hard for this and out in the community advocating for it. And it was clearly a, a priority because uh, Mayor Emanuel wanted to be seen as the guy who made the city boom again after the, the Great Recession. And he'd done a lot of other big developments. So this one is the uh, Godzilla <laughs> of them all. There's a, it, 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 it merits its mega term, right? Yeah, yeah. Up to, if they do spend $1.3 billion in TIF funds, it will be the largest expenditure of its kind in the city's history. But there's also been consistent pushback on this development from the beginning. Linda, just remind us of some of the concerns that have come out of the community. Absolutely. And maybe that brings us um, easily to the lawsuit, uh, because you did hear opposition right away to this sort of development. And recall, you know, there was a mayoral election at the time. And uh, many of the candidates, including current Mayor Lori Lightfoot, had said, uh, this is they pointed to this development here, Lincoln Yards, and said, this is the kind of development we were not looking for and we don't think we should subsidize. I guess uh, community, sort of grassroots folks, folks from neighborhoods with less investment were saying, why is the city investing in areas that are clearly already on a course to develop on their own? And that became the fundamental argument in a lawsuit that would be filed just one week after Lincoln Yards TIF passes. Um, You know, the development was one thing, but the subsidy was something else. And that's where activists really had a problem. This is where we had, you know, the incoming alderman out on the street on LaSalle Street, blocking LaSalle Street that day, uh, along with activists. So the crux of the lawsuit basically says this particular TIF was unnecessary because TIFs are supposed to be development tools for blighted areas. And their argument is, this would have developed on its own. And the second argument they make, and they make this broadly for all TIFs, they say they're racially inequitable. What TIFs do is they trap all of the tax funding in that one area. Now, you can imagine for an underdeveloped area, that might be a good idea, right? Like, I really need extra tax revenue in this area, so I'm going to keep it all right here instead of sending it citywide and then getting my little piece. But if you're talking about one of the very likely one of the most wealthy areas in the city, capturing 100% of its future tax revenue for the next 23 years. That's where these activists are saying, wait a minute, how are we capturing all of the wealthiest tax revenue and keeping it for the wealthiest areas? Well, let's hear from some of the plaintiffs in this case. For 30 years, the city of Chicago has used TIF as a tool for economic development. But under Mayor Rahm Emanuel and Richard Daley, the city abused the TIF program by using it to concentrate billions of dollars in select downtown and high-income neighborhoods. How can we give away $1.3 billion when there are such massive needs in Chicago public education? CPS needs $1.9 billion just to be considered adequately funded by the state. The goals of our lawsuit are twofold. First, we seek to freeze this TIF and we filed a motion for a preliminary injunction to stop public money from going to the luxury Lincoln Yards development 
And second, we ask the city to reform a TIF system that has long been unlawful, unfair, and racially discriminatory in its impact. So that's some of the plaintiffs in this case. And, and Hal, I just want you to explain what was happening in this court hearing yesterday. Right. They went into court, and the city's trying to dismiss the suit, saying that the uh, Grassroots Collaborative, which is an advocacy organization, a very progressive advocacy organization backed uh, largely by unions, and uh, the Raise Your Hand uh, education group don't have standing. So they can't even bring the suit in the first place. And while the judge seemed incredibly sympathetic, uh, Judge Neil Cohen, to the basic argument of the lawsuit, the, the idea that this development would occur there, even without the TIF, and so it's not necessary. He also was very skeptical about whether these folks had standing or not, because they have to show that they were they were harmed in some way. And he said, "Well, you," and, and they're trying to say, "Well, we're spending so many resources on this time and money, we can't do the other things that we want to do." And he says, "Well, that's a choice that you made, and under the legal standards, you can't show that you." suffered harm in this case. So he was strongly hinting that you know they may have a real problem there. He's going to rule on it uh, ne- next week. But he also did interestingly suggest maybe you just don't have the right plaintiff mm. in this lawsuit. And depending on uh, his ruling, it's possible that they could come back with a different plaintiff. Linda, what did you take away from the judge's statements? I thought it was interesting. This judge seemed incredibly sympathetic to some of the, these really big, overarching arguments that the plaintiffs are trying to bring. You know, he mentioned redlining. He talked about social justice. He talked about the need for social change. He gestured to a, a current administration. He said that he knows wants that change. But he kept saying, I am bound by the law. And your legal arguments have to be within the law. I took away the same thing Hal did. I think it would be hard to be in that courtroom and not take something else away. It was more of a discussion. These weren't. This wasn't sort of a formal arguments. It was a back and forth. Yeah, and he was, set it up that way. Yeah, yeah. It was a Socratic method, if, if if you will, that was going on in that courtroom. Much like you you hear when the the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, hears arguments, you know, and he was challenging both sides, but he seemed to have a, bigger challenges uh, presented to the plaintiffs in the case. One thing that he did say that I thought was uh, very interesting is he says, we all know what happened here. There was a rush to judgment because they saw the trend. And the trend he's talking about is what I focused on in my story, and that is that if it had waited another six weeks uh, with the rising land values in that area, uh, what would have uh, happened was they no longer would have been able to be considered blighted and declare a TIF district. TIF districts are for blighted areas. And the argument from the plaintiffs in the case was that even if they met that timeline, that the trend uh, goes against the intent of the law in the first place, that it will be developed without the TIF. It's, a, it's, a, it's like the so-called but-for test, meaning that it won't happen but for the TIF district. When the finalized numbers came in for 2018, this property would not qualify as blighted, and there could be no TIF here. And and what would that have meant for Sterling Bay, the developer of this project? Well, they would have had to go back to the, the drawing board. They could have. They could come in and say it's a conservation TIF, meaning that without the uh, TIF district, it's at risk of becoming blighted. There's lesser standards, but there's also one additional standard that they didn't analyze, and I don't know if they met it or not. 
but that would have been such a difficult haul. I don't think, you know, to convince people, oh, it's good that the area between Lincoln Park and Bucktown along the developing Chicago River is going to be blighted. I think that would have been just really difficult and would have taken years more to do. Well, Linda, the judge has said he'll issue a ruling sometime between next week and October 18th. Do you have any sense yet of when this could come down? The judge did give those parameters in court yesterday. Uh, He said he'll issue a written decision. Um, So we can look for that as early as next week. And um, I think the hearing, the next hearing, is set for October 14th. So that's when the two sides will be back in court. I think it was interesting, and I asked the city. The city will not comment on pending litigation. Uh, But I did ask the city, why are you pursuing this? You know, you're uh, now under an administration that as Hal mentioned, had publicly said this should slow down. Mayor Lightfoot has also said she would be taking a look at sort of every step of the way. And I asked the city, why are you still pursuing this uh, this lawsuit? Again, no comment, because they just don't comment on pending litigation. But activists are actually calling for her to drop the opposition to the lawsuit and open an investigation. You know, their point, an appointment made in court yesterday was, Okay, the final numbers might not have been there, but all the things that make up those final numbers, the Department of Planning would have been privy to and should have been more transparent about to Chicagoans. And and just quickly, if the plaintiffs lose here, is this the end of the story? Or as Hal mentioned, is this maybe about finding a different plaintiff in the case? I think it probably depends on the judge's decision um, and how he dismisses it, if he does dismiss it. And his written decision will indicate whether there are paths to pursue for the plaintiffs. That's WBEZ Neighborhoods reporter Linda Lutton, also with us, Chicago Tribune reporter Hal Dardick. Hal, Linda, thanks. Thank Thank you. And that's today's Morning Shift. Pick us back up tomorrow for our Friday News Roundup. It's a breakdown of the biggest local stories of the week. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.